This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and a very warm welcome to the Crash MotoGP podcast. My name is Harry Benjamin. It's episode five. And on the show this week, we look back on a very somber weekend's worth of racing out in Mugello. Alongside me, former rider, British champion and commentator Keith Hewan and Crash MotoGP editor Pete McLaren. And of course, we have to start the show with a tribute after what was an incredibly tragic weekend for MotoGP with the sad loss of the young 19-year-old Moto3 rider Jason Dupasquier. A collision in qualifying saw him sustain injuries that sadly he couldn't overcome. And we all know that motorsport is dangerous, but I think it's easy, isn't it, Keith, to forget that these riders put their lives on the line every time they hit the track. And on this occasion, sadly, we were all given a stark reminder of, of the dark side to this sport. When you're traveling, traveling at that kind of velocity, obviously, you know, connecting with something is 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 the worst case scenario, and we've seen it many, many times. And people have got away with it. You you you're always amazed by what a human body seems to be able to go through and sustain um, reasonably. But in Jason's case, obviously, that wasn't the case. Um, I, I tell you, I don't know how you two feel. But I'm as flat as a dog this morning. It's just like one of them things where it kind of catches up on you. You can imagine what it's like in the paddock. I mean, some pe- some teams kept the news away from their riders, particularly in the Moto2 race that was lining up when this news broke at the track. Um, and even, you know, you know Marco Bezzecchi actually referring to Jason in part Ferme, having finished third eventually after all the track limits warnings have been done and dusted, um, referring to Jason in, in, in that, not knowing yet his team obviously kept it from him while he was on the grid, which is the right thing to do in my mind. Um, extremely sad. Everybody, we're like Borg. I don't know if anybody's a Trekkie fan or something like that. We're like Borg. You touch one of us and we're all stung by it. And I think that you think of the circle that we have from broadcasting through races, through families, through history, everybody's attached to it. It was interesting to see as well just how many Formula One guys and different formulas that, that were touched by it, the amount of tweets that you know people that never knew jason but were absolutely connected to him almost genetically when it comes to racing and i think that there are a lot of people waking up today with very very heavy hearts as keith says perfectly there yeah just a tragic accident and the worst case scenario i mean it, you know 
young guy as well, just starting his career. He, he didn't score a point last year, but he made a big step this year. He scored points in all of the races. He finished within one second of victory at Jerez. You know, so this is a guy who had all the potential to be a future star, but just that, that worst-case scenario of a rider falling down the track rather than off the track and the bikes behind, and it was the crest of a hill where you know the, the visibility is lower. And so it's just a, just a great, great shame. Yeah, well, um, I think uh, you both echo everybody's thoughts there, Keith and Pete. Thank you for that. An incredibly sad weekend, really. Uh, and all of us at Crash, along with MotoGP and, and the wider motorsport community, send our thoughts to uh, Jason's friends, family, and uh, his team at this, uh, well, hugely difficult time. But one debate that it did bring up, of course, before we we dive into the, the main racing action was that a lot of, especially the MotoGP riders, were not happy about the decision to even go racing uh, on Sunday. They weren't even asked. Bagnaia Petrucci were very outspoken with that. Petrucci said he even felt like he wasn't clean. He didn't he felt dirty racing. Uh, do you think? Do you think it was a debate that should have been had? Personally, no. I think it's emotive. It's very emotional. I mean, the, the, the MotoGP riders, particularly, have just come off the back of a one-minute silence. The, the, the news had broken in just prior to the race before them, then they've got a one-minute silence. They've got to stand under the Magello sun, thinking of this kid, having time to reflect on everything that, that just happened. I mean, from a personal and human point of view, I've been there, I've seen it, you know, I've felt it, so I, I know exactly how they felt. But at the same time, I think when it's emotive like that, I mean, it's a personal choice. They're contracted to do what they've got to do, the riders, so therefore they may feel that they are slightly trapped in that situation. But I think to to have called off the event um, would have been the wrong move, um, personally. That's not being dispassionate at all. That's the way I just see it. It's a, At the time, I think a knee-jerk reaction like that wouldn't have done anybody any good at all. Um, I hear calls for the family should have been spoken to. Bloody hell. Yeah, let's have that decision laid on our plate at a time where we've just lost our 19-year-old son. I mean, I, I think that... Yeah, of course, if a family had said that, that we prefer it not to go ahead or make that view, then then that would have been a major um, problem for Dorna to have worked their way through. Um, but I think that actually sort of bringing the family into it, allowing emotions to get ahead of the game, um, I think would have been the wrong thing to do. Does that sound harsh? I, I mean, that's my honest opinion. I think most of the riders agreed with you, Keith, as um, as Harry was saying, a few were, were quite strongly against having the race, but most of them seem to, to feel that, you know, it's not going to change what happened on Saturday. They should go ahead and, and, you know, do their jobs. And, you know, no doubt nobody wanted to race, but there's no perfect answer in that situation. It's it's a bad situation all around and whatever you do. So, you know, on the other hand, I guess if you're going to cancel a race, a race without any fans is easier to cancel, but you know, what would it have achieved, you know? So I, I, I think... I, I personally think a lot of people would have felt even worse having got shot of all that adrenaline and focus. You can, as a rider, you can focus on your job. You can focus on what you're going to do next and you can put that tragedy somewhere to the back of your mind for just those, you know, 40 minutes or whatever it is um, and to, to get that out of your system and then try to, to move along. Like I said a minute ago, I mean, the problem is... No, it's not a problem. It's lovely. Everybody knows everybody in the paddock now. It's, it's you know, we, we all travel. We all stay in hotels. We all, you know, Pete, you're the same. You'll run the track on a Wednesday or a Thursday with everybody else. You know, 
first time I ever met Jack Miller was before he was even a star in Moto Three, and 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 that was you know walking. I was walking the track, by the way. He was running it. Um, you know, the, the, everyone is close. It's a situation where he, you know, journalist-wise, I mean, journalists used to be. You know, I remember a very high-profile person within the uh, triple clamp of, of Dorna, Erta, and, and the FIM referring to journalists as scum of the earth. But even even the scum of the earth now mix with the stars at the trackside because we're all a bit of a family regarding that. So when you get a tragedy like this, and there have been many. I mean, the last one that really affected that really affected me personally because we knew him uh, not well, but certainly we knew him quite well, was, was Luis Salon, Mexicana, at, uh, at the next track that we go to, Catalonia, when he was was killed there. And then that's why we had all those track modifications that through, through 10, 11, 12, 13, the final few corners, was because of Luis. And, you know, another lovely, lovely kid in a freak incident um, that no one really could have foreseen at the time. But there's always going to be this, you know, there are going to be people at home that feel that the race shouldn't have run in respect. There are going to be people at home that said, of course it should have been run. It's, it's an opinion. Don't troll the other side, if you like, because, you know, everyone's got their viewpoint and they should have their viewpoint. These, mm. This is where opinions, you know, matter. But at the end of the day, the sport had to go on. I mean, Mugello is a major, the Italian Grand Prix is a major, major event. Um, and they were struggling enough down in Mugello to start with, with no fans on site. So it was a, a strange environment anyway. Well, uh, Morbidelli said, sometimes life is a bastard, sometimes life is shit, but you need to go forward because it's life. And I think uh, many of your riders did agree with that, Pete, as you said on Sunday. And the best way to honour Jason was to go racing in his name, and that they did. Uh, and it was Fabio Quartararo who won from pole position ahead of Miguel Oliveira. And Joan Mir in third, one of the most physical races on the calendar, it seemed, actually. But it was all action before the lights even went out for MotoGP with a very bizarre incident. I mean, I watched it. Bastianini going straight into the back of Zarco. It, it, I mean, it, explain it to me because it, was, it was it a racing incident or was it just someone with a huge lapse of concentration? Well, you as a car man will remember what happened there in... F1, well, you're, approach, you're approaching the start line, which is a long way up the street. You're coming out of a fast corner. You've got a long way till you get to the, the, the start-finish line, if you like. It's a long way up the street. So you've got a lot of, lot of speed on already. And if you remember back in F1, then they fell over themselves, and there was, what, 10, 15 cars that were banging into each other. Yeah. And what you've got on a motorbike nowadays is a bit F1. You've got a lot of stuff to fiddle with. You know, you've got stuff you've got to look down at. You've got to make sure that you've got, you know, all your controls in the right place. You've got you've got a situation where, you know, Zarco might have been trying to engage something that um, meant you had to have that front brake on at the same time as Anaya was looking down. I mean, the closing speed, again, it comes down to what we were talking about just a moment ago. Closing speed is, is huge. Bastianini should have been looking. I mean, the responsibility was Bastianini's, in my view, not Zarco. Um but all the same, when you suddenly look up and you've got a bike that's stopped in front of you, that's a bit of a major problem. Well, when you compare it to that F1 incident, obviously that was behind a safety car as they were about to get going again. This is as they're coming back at the end of a formation that ready. They all know they're about to stop on the grid, Pete. So surely you're going to be, I know you've got, you've got a lot to do, you're looking down, but that just seemed a bit careless. 
yeah, I'm as you might have noticed in our previous um, podcast, I'm I'm not keen to criticise riders because <laughs> seeing it seeing it through the eyes of a rider is is quite difficult. It's a unique perspective they have, and and I'll go back to what I said just a minute ago. That's a long way up the road that start line where the where the grid is a long way up the road. So you've got the opportunity to be on the gas for just a second or two to get a bit of heat in the rear tire. Then you jam the front brake on to get your brakes up to temperature and your front tire up to temperature as well. And you're trying to concentrate on perhaps, you know, the, the new trick um, start strategies that they've got nowadays. So there's a lot going on in that last hundred yards. Um, it was, I mean, it was unlucky. Zarko was on the brakes when Enea was on the, on the gas and weren't looking. And that's, that's what it comes to, you know, coming together. Luckily, no one was hurt, and it didn't too adversely, apart from it would have mucked up his start strategy a little bit in his head. Um, it, it didn't affect Zarco too badly either. No, Pete didn't, did it? Because, well, Bastianini out on the spot. It, well, he was running. I didn't know he was, I think, was he just running to get off the grid as quick as possible? Like no, running for his second bike. Yeah, He'd that's been what I thought. <laughs> <laughs> well, luckily, luckily, Zarco did have some damage, which didn't seem to affect him too much in the race, did he? But that's going to put you off your game, isn't it, Pete, as soon as you're lining up on the grid? Uh, yeah, exactly. And and also going back to what we were saying earlier and, and rider concentration, Bastianini said, you know, wasn't maybe concentrating as much as normal as you can understand a lot of motions in their head and of course you've got to warm the brakes as we all know jam the brakes on you've also got these front hole shot devices which require you to compress the front suspension so it's 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 always been an issue and now it's even more of an issue riders having to hit the brakes really hard and press buttons and not sort of look at what they're doing and and everything else as Keith said, most people seem to think, look, Bastianini's the guy behind. He's the guy that needs to be aware. This guy might, in front of me might hit the brakes. He's got to warm the brakes. He's got to do his whole shot device. Some were slightly more, you know, well, maybe Zarko could have been a little bit, you know, more to one side maybe. But, yeah, really, it, it was just one of those things. At the moment, it's a one-off. Let's hope it stays that way. Do you know what I've, I find quite interesting is that, that I, I often have conversations with URTA, the International Race Teams Association, that oversee the, the teams' contracts and the like, and, and the discussion over safety and stuff like that. And it's amazing how these uh, innovations sneak in without people thinking of them. And the MSMA, the, the, the association that has to agree anything that's a, a, you know, rule change-wise, the, the, the manufacturers have to agree, whatever it is. And this whole shot device, to be honest, we could do without it. You're never going to need it on a road bike. It's not a development that's going to be any bloody use on a road bike. Aero, I can understand. Seamless gearboxes, I can understand. Oh, I haven't said that. I remember there was a fair big faction that said to, to me at the time when seamless gearboxes came about, if we'd have foreseen seamless gearboxes, we would have banned them from the start because the cost in involving seamless gearboxes or making seamless gearboxes. But I personally, I think that, that seamless gearboxes are absolutely brilliant. And the sooner we see them in road bikes, the better. They're, they're, they're glorious. Um, so I think that's an enhancement for a road machine or, or for development future. Whole shot device, when the hell are we ever going to see one of them on a robot? You just don't need it, do you? I mean, traffic light burn-ups are, you know, you get hung, drawn and quartered nowadays for playing on the road. So, you know, back in the day, you know, I might have been able to use it back in the day. But nowadays, kids, if you've got a whole shot device, forget it. There's a policeman waiting for you. So I, I could I could I can't see it being banned because it's already out there. And that's the problem you get with these things. And then there was the... The air scoop that they said it was for cooling the tyres when Ducati came up with the, the scoop on the back. It was supposed to be, but of course, everybody else knew it was aero. Of course it was aero. But Ducati managed to come up with 
with uh, the, the the trick conversation and, and and statistics that it was actually cooling. It was a tire cooler, which you were uh, you were allowed. Um, but you weren't allowed to have a piece of aero on the back there where they put it. But they managed to argue that it was for cooling the tire. So therefore, it was allowed, and then everybody else is on the back foot. And in actual fact, <laughs> if I waffle on about the air scoop a bit more, the spoon on the back, the shovel that they stuck on in front of the rear wheel, it was bloody Yamaha always had it because they had it as a water deflector. They used to run it in the wet to, to deflect the water that was coming down the motorbike and deflect it away from the rear tyre. Uh, and so they actually had one before anybody else, but they didn't actually cotton on. You could use it as aero. <laughs> Bad boys, Yamaha. <laughs> well, what, what do you think about actually talking of, you know, these uh, developments and starting of these various starting devices that all the, uh, the different manufacturers sort of coming up with and playing about with? And it was actually Banyai who sort of had the best start off the line and pipped, uh, pipped Quartararo before then a bit of carnage. But, you know, what did you make of that start initially? Because there's been a lot made about these devices and who's, who's, who's going to get the better jump, basically, isn't it? I think... Personally, I, I think that we are talking about the premier prototype class. So, therefore, there has to be rules. Otherwise, it would be back to six cylinders and, and you know, 25,000 revs and 500 gears or something. But it, ha- it has to be there has to be rules which they work within. I love seeing the way that, that, that people like Gigi Delinia and, and, and people that really think about what's going on. I mean, the Ducati is a spaceship. I mean, that is not a motorbike. It's got more lumps and bumps all over it. It looks like it ought to be in orbit. I don't know about running around a racetrack. It doesn't seem to do them any much good in some respects. But I think with a prototype class like MotoGP, you should be able to come up with these trick things. Now, if it's a if it's a, a class that's for developing things for the road, which is all, is quite often an excuse. I mean, then you, you know, Formula One they say that they're developing things for the future. Um, you know, ele- electric bloody motors and god knows what else they're doing at the moment well bikes are, i suppose you could argue the same the reason we go round and round in circles as fast and as, and as efficiently as we do is to develop things for the future uh, whether a whole shot device is crucial for our motorbikes in the future i don't really know but uh, my personal opinion would be let them do whatever they want to do because it's a prototype class and uh, it is it's interesting and there are nerds around the world that love all this stuff yeah, well, it's all it's all about pushing the limits, isn't it? In uh, top tier racing, that's it. And and the great thing about these latest developments on the Ducati is that we can see them. Of course, <laughs> you know, they, if there's a development in the engine or the electronics, they might make a great step, and it might be really exciting. But no one outside of the team has any idea that they've done it. So, you know, we're, we all love these gizmos that we can see for exactly that reason. That you know, what have they done now? So it it, it adds to the interest. Of course, once everybody's got them, then of course the advantage then disappears and so then there's more of an argument for maybe banning them if, if there's a safety issue or something but you know let, let, let's see i mean at the moment there does seem to be a variation in how they perform the ducati obviously performing the best some of the others a bit worse but as mark marquez has said where will it all lead it's leading to to, to higher top speeds on the straight you know they're, they're dropping the back of the bike on going onto the straights now will they drop the front is it is it too much for the riders to be doing manually is it you know, as soon as it becomes a safety issue, that's when normally they'll act. If it's not a safety issue, then they're usually happy to let them carry on. I still want to know what's in Ducati's lunchbox. Nobody knows really what's in there. Have you ever seen what, what's hidden away in that lunchbox under the back seat? Maybe uh, in his lunch. A couple, of, a couple <laughs> of ham sandwiches. <laughs> I was at, at the Hareth test a few years back. I think it was Petrucci's bike came back to the pits. 
and it, it had broken the side off the, the box and there's some metal another metal box inside i mean you know the, the theory is that it's it's a mass damper and it certainly something happened to tame that ducati didn't it it used yeah. to be a beast it used to wobble and kick down the straights and then suddenly it's become really stable so the, the, the best guess is that it's a mass damper that sort of dials out some of the vibrations and chatter and just makes the bike easier to control. But as you say, it's still a big secret, really. Gigi's Russian doll, I think. <laughs> layer upon layer of <laughs> yeah. punch box. There's a, lot, there's a lot of boxes in that. Well, come on, let's, let's get into that, uh, into some racing action, because in that, it was all action, really, especially in the early phase of... Uh, of the race and it looked like it was uh bad nice to lose early on and then a sort of bit of carnage unfolds starting with uh with mark marquez going for a move that wasn't really on and he sort of then crashed out and ruined morbidelli's race for good measure as well who was pretty much an instant victim in that and then we see bad sliding out from the lead on the exit of arabiata one heartbreak because ducati power looked like they had the edge here ever so slightly Got the same thing that I always beat the, beat the drum about. If you qualify badly, you're going to have to force it to fit on those opening laps. And there's no man that likes to force it to fit more than Mark Marquez, but he just happened to ram Morbidelli off into the dirt. So um, it was racing incident, nothing you can do about it. I'm sure Morbidelli will have been philosophical about it afterwards, although absolutely steaming because he'd got work to do from back there as well. But to qualify, what, 22nd on the grid or whatever it was that Mark ended up qualifying. Was it 22nd? I can't remember what it was. Um, let me check it out. Yeah, twenty second. I mean, well, honestly, he was, he was trying some uh, some interesting. Oh no, that was Alex. Sorry, that was Alex Marquez. Mark qualified eleventh. That's it. I was going to say he couldn't have been twenty second. That's because Mark, Mark Marquez qualified eleventh. Uh, he was doing those qualifying runs, wasn't he? Those uh, <laughs> legal but cheeky qualifying. Well, I mean, th- that's another bone of contention, wasn't it? He was chasing. Uh, <laughs> But again, it was Maverick Vinales through FP3, put himself in a position where he had to go through qualifying one when he should never have been through qualifying one. Not in a Yamaha around there. A Yamaha around there with an open lap is a fast motorcycle. A Yamaha amongst a set of Ducatis in a race is a different kettle of fish because they can get up underneath you and you can muck your perfect lap up because they're faster. But the fact was that FP3, he let himself down a bit in FP3, put himself in qualifying one. And do you know what? It's his fault. Not Mark Marquez. Mark Marquez didn't break any rules. Mark Marquez is an assassin. He's a monster. He's got the smiliest face. He knew he needed not so much a toe for the horsepower side of it, but someone to aim at. He needed something extra. Maverick Vinales was going to be the victim. The fact that you know Maverick Vinales has got the you know the, the mental stability of a of a China doll when it comes to being able to shake that stuff out of his mind and get on with the business. He was fast. He didn't. Don't worry about Mark Marquez. You know, get on and do the job. It's qualifying one. There's only two places that you're going to go through. He should have been on the front row. Maverick Vinales had the pace to be somewhere around the front row. And by letting it all get to him and letting the fact that Mark Marquez, quite legally, if not, I mean, uh, the only sad thing for Mark Marquez is he's lost another legion of fans by doing it. I mean, he's, you know, if you if you worry about the popularity situation, Marquez drops to an all-time low with that kind of manoeuvre. It's not something, it's not favoured in the paddock. Nobody likes it in the paddock. Nobody likes it on the terraces. Nobody likes it in the media, um, particularly when he took the shortcut as well, because Magello's got a shortcut that you can use. Mav tried to shake him off out of the out of his slipstream and, and came through the shortcut, looks over his shoulder and thinks, what the flip? He's still here. And once that got in his head, 
he had two laps to put it together and he messed up. He was going to be through and he messed up in the final corner, I think it was, wasn't it? But, uh, and it's just, I blame Maverick Vinales for not concentrating on his job and worrying about somebody else's. There you go. I think that's a fair shout. Yeah, I was going to say, a lot of the other riders, when they were asked, what would you do or what do you think about it? They said, you just have to ignore it. There's nothing you can do but get on with your own qualifying lap and set your own time. The slight side issue with Marquez is, you know, no question it was within the rules, but you think, why did he bother? I mean, Mark's big problem at the moment is he hasn't got the strength to do a race distance at a decent speed, as he says. So if he gets one or two places on the grid... Is it going to make any difference to him? I mean, if you're Frankie Morbidelli and you're down 20 kilometers an hour, you might understand the persistence. But, you know, of course, there was nothing wrong with it legally. But what did he gain from it? You know, (laughs) his big issue is the shoulder. Would it have changed? Where would he have been without the toe? 14th on the grid, a couple of places back. I I don't know. But he's, yeah, he's, he's clearly willing to use whatever he can to get the best possible time. And you might say, well, that's his job, Honda Payne, to do the best possible lap in every session. But there's a lot of riders out there that, that are equally desperate, that are, you know, Rossi's having a bad time, Petrucci's having a bad time. Morbidelli's suffering on the straights a lot. He would really need a toe. But they, they would they have followed someone into the pits? That was the questionable bit. Following someone on track, that's racing. You know, it's part of the strategy of when the team lets you out the pits. But to actually then take the shortcut with him. That was where some people felt he sort of crossed the line a bit in a sporting sense. But if he's fighting for the race win, if he's fighting for the title, fair enough. But in the situation he's currently in, where he he said on Saturday night, where will I finish? Eighth, 12th, 14th? You know, he knows he's nowhere near being fully fit yet. Does he really need to spend mental energy and time chasing these toes? Why not work on the bike a bit more? Do you know what affects Mark Marquez? what concerns me about the effect this is all having on Mark Marquez is in his head because he's compromised his strength and his ability in the eyes of everyone else in the paddock. He's shown to be, you know, slightly desperate in this situation to, to gain that extra couple of places. And I think he may have even compromised his own thoughts regarding this. I mean, you imagine how much he must have hated afterwards himself for pulling that manoeuvre, based on what you've just said, Pete, you're absolutely right. There was no real gain in it for him. And he will have analysed that. Now, he must have, before he actually did it, he must have thought to himself, I need a toe. So he went and looked for the, the fastest man out there, found him, and basically but he, you know, caused him a whole load of grief. But the fact is, what worries me to an extent, is that Mark Marquez is compromising normally his strength, his strong man type attitude. There's no way that Mark would have ever been worried about another rider around him, whether someone was getting a toe off of him or come on, if you think you're hard enough, used to be the the sort of phrase I would use for the likes of Mark Marquez. Um, But all of a sudden, mentally, he he looks just as fragile as any other rider, you know, as any other person, any other, whereas before he was above that, he was an alien. He was, you know, there was something out of worldly about him, what he could achieve without having to come to these kind of tactics. Um, I think if we go back to the, you know, the infamous 2015 Rossi Marquez uh, situation at uh, Sepang. I mean, you know, <laughs> ready for the yellow army to jump all over Hewan here. But that was Rossi's fault. And it was Rossi's fault in the press conference on the Thursday. He picked up a grenade, threw it at Mark Marquez, and then it rolled right back under Rossi and blew up under his feet because he absolutely st- stabbed Marquez and, and stabbed Marquez into 
goading Valentina. Now, whether you agree with what you know uh, Marquez did to Rossi from that point onwards, it's up to you what you think and how you how you see it. Um, but the fact was that it was <laughs> it was Rossi who started it in the press conference, basically calling Marquez a liar. Now. How do we how do we attach where we are now with Marquez and back then? I think the fact is is that Marquez had strength at that time. He was like he was the boss on track and off of it. Really, he was in control of everything. Whereas he doesn't have that feel about him now. He feels slightly more fragile. It's going to be interesting to see uh, how he recovers from this point. I think he will. Um, I think it's taking longer than he would have expected. It may even be taking longer than the men around him would have expected, and men and women around him, obviously. Um, it's, but he will recover. I think he will come back. I think it's going to be 2022 before we see Mark Marquez anything like, providing he doesn't hurt himself again. He's been off a lot this year. Again, he's actually he's fallen down like Mark Marquez would in normal circumstances, but his recovery in speed has not been as great as it would have been in the past. So I think Mark's really only 75 percent of the Mark Marquez we know. There was that that. Sorry, Harry, but there was that road bike test just before Mugello, which was unusual, wasn't it? Because Mark doesn't normally ride road bikes. He trains on dirt bikes. That's his thing. But it was all about trying to test his position on the bike to try and sort out, you know, this this discomfort and pain that he's having. But by all accounts, it, it didn't go well. You know, it, it it really just confirmed that they are they have got major issues at the moment in trying to get him comfortable and trying to work with that. Well, as you said, it's, it's not just the shoulder, it's also the neck and everything connected to it. It's, it's not even just one area now. So it does sound like he's a, he's a fair way off being fully fit. And it is a surprise to say, Keith, when you look at the previous shoulder operations, he would have the operation start of December. He'd be on the bike at the Sepang test two months later. And by round one in Qatar, he was pretty much fully fit, wasn't he? And that was only six weeks later. Well, it's been six weeks now since he came back in Portimao. And you, you'd say he's a long way off being fully fit now. And the Honda, you know, is not a great motorbike. Even Mick Doohan was critical of it when it when he did a, a you know, Toto Wolf and Mick Doohan were wandering around hand in hand. Um, I don't know whether Mick's vying for a um, Mercedes drive for his um, son Jack or what, but anyway, that's another story altogether. But um, even Mick Doohan was as critical as Mick Doohan is ever likely to be in public about Honda. I was stunned actually that he said that you know Honda had got a work a bit harder as well. So I, I think the bike is also nowhere. You know, you know, where's Polis Bar growing all of this? Takaki Nakagami is the only one that's going really any good on a Honda. Um, I bet they rue the day they let Cal Crutzlow go because he'd have been trying hard on it. Well, I'll tell you what, on Honda, that does bring me nicely on because I will I want to come back to the, the, the top three, but we were on Honda, so we may as well uh, go on to it. And we had, uh, we had a question coming as well. But the top Honda for a while was Nakagami. He crashed out, three laps to go, rider error by the looks of it. Next Honda down was 13th. They just seemed to be a bit all over the place. And then Paul Aspargo, as you say, he was the best Honda eventually in about, I think, 12th, wasn't it? But 26 seconds off the pace. Jake88CI from YouTube has uh, given quite a strong view here. So (laughs) see what you think of it. He says, the elephant in the room is that all the Honda riders are crashing because the Honda is the worst handling bike in MotoGP. No one wants to say so in fear of being blacklisted by Honda and possibly missing out on Honda's money and deals. For the past six to seven years, no one but Marc Marquez was good enough to ride around the Honda's major problems. The problem that Honda have had, I mean, and this is Dorna that did a brilliant, brilliant job 
um, basically Dorna took away the control factor that Honda had over their very very lively motorbike. It's not it's not just, handling is not just about chassis. It's about power delivery. It's about off the power. Uh, it, 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 it's a real slick combination of electronics that used to control the slightly lively Honda power. Um, and when they went to the spec ECU and the spec inertial platform as well, that screwed Honda. Um, Nakamoto, I remember Nakamoto was really against it. The old Formula One uh, manager and then sort of um, MotoGP manager as well. I mean, Shuhai Nakamoto was, was they were against having their own electronics package taken away because they had the most advanced electronics in the paddock, I believe. And going back to where we are now with the electronics, the spec electronics that's controlling all of the motorbikes now, um, it was like going back five, six, seven years in, in technology. Um, and so I think Honda were all at sea fairly soon after that was evident, as soon as that rule got passed through by all of the, the manufacturers. Getting Honda to agree to that was a remarkable feat of, politics for me i mean i i remember thinking at the end that there's no way honda are going to agree to give up their electronics platform i just didn't believe it for a second and then all of a sudden it's been agreed you know how did that pete did, i mean how did that come about how how was that possible because i wouldn't have given it up if i'd have been honda i think what the other factor was that world superbike also came under dawner's control at about that same time ah. and i think quite prior to that honda had been kind of suggesting that they might move their resources over to World Superbike. as, as they kind of, Right, yeah. So I think that that was maybe an issue when they realised that there was no alternative now and that World Superbike would also be going down this same route of the spec electronics eventually, that I guess they knew then the game perhaps was up and they had to just fall in line with it. But as you say, it, it did take one of their strengths away. You can also look at some of these gizmos on the Ducati and, and those grew up, the wings, for example, because the electronics were no longer as good. Instead of using the electronics to stop the wheelie, you now use the wings to stop the wheelie instead, rather than you know, brutally cutting the power with the, with the, the less advanced electronics. So, Ducati yeah, that, had, a, had a bit of a head start, though. Magnetti Morelli, I mean, hang on a minute, Ducati ran all their stuff anyway. So, I mean, they were halfway down the path to, um, to Nirvana anyway on the electronics front. Um, I think the, the, in answer to, to our mate's question, I can't remember his handle now because it was so long, but the, the, the point being is that um, Honda lost the electronics. The bike's never been an easy animal anyway, and it was developed by Mark Marquez, an alien who rides a motorbike unlike anybody else. You've only got to remember listening to Cal Crutzo. Crutzo said, yeah, we've got all the data. We can look at all of his data. Honda share it with us, but I can't do on a motorbike what what Mark Marquez does on a motorbike. He does it in such a way that it's almost impossible for for, for a for a rider to follow him in that manner and now marquez is back he's not quite up to speed honda you know with the with the development freeze that came from from last year of course there's this they can't do anything with the honda they they don't have concessions of any kind at all to be able to mess around with that motorbike it is what it is right now i'll tell you what i bet they've slung a couple of extra hands on it back at the factory for 2022 Mm, well, uh, that was Jake eighty eight CI. Oh, well, there you go. Up, so no thank wonder you. I didn't remember him. Thank you, Jake. Hopefully that uh, <laughs> that answered your uh, well, not really question, more of a statement, really. Um, but let's go back up front, uh, if I may be so bold. Um, and actually, I mean, 
is there much to say about Banyaya? Because I mean, would he have won it? Do you think? Did he have? Did he have the he hold off Quartararo? <laughs> of course, you're saying that. <laughs> but you know, it was rider error clearly. But he, he wasn't exactly. I mean, it was early phase of the race. He wasn't exactly pulling a big gap to Quartararo at the time. And also, Zara no, it was it was, a, it was early stages, and it was a massive yeah. shame for Bang. Banyaya's coming for his first win. There's no doubt in my mind about that. I mean, I think that. Italian Grand Prix on an Italian bike for an Italian. I mean, it, it, you get a rush of blood to the head and, and leading the Italian Grand Prix is a major thing for him as well. I mean, tyre-wise too, the, 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 any advantage, I mean, Ducati not winning there is a bit of a major thing for them. They've had you know a good run at that place, but I think the new Michelin tyres that were here this week, no asymmetrics, you know, straightforward tyres. They they work really well for the inline four-cylinder bikes, the, the, the Suzuki's, the Yamaha's. And they've kind of just about taken a tiny bit of advantage that Ducati may have had uh, at Mugello away from them. And it meant over the course of a whole race, the Yamahas weren't going to see the drop-off that they'd seen in, in tyre performance before. So the Ducati were going to have it have it bad, but it did look like Van Nye was on for it. And strategy would have been for all Ducati riders was to, to mire every single corner and, and entry speed that... Um, Quattararo had had because once Quattararo got in front or and again I go back to Maverick Vinales Maverick Vinales had the pace to win that race he should have been there or thereabouts instead he's poncing about at the back trying to work his way through a bunch of Ducatis every time he gets in front of them through the twisty bits they're down alongside him into the into the braking area courtesy of the 20 mile an hour or 15 mile an hour I think it was actual that um, they have over the over the Yamahas in a straight line and while we're on the subject of that speed I do not want to hear anybody say they want to modify Mugello to stop them from going fast at Mugello. I um, absolutely don't. I, you know, there's a journo, David David Emmett, a motor matters, who I have huge respect for, I have to say. Um, he's an incredibly dedicated journalist, as are most of you, considering the shit you get from the likes of us. <laughs> Sorry, Pete. Um, but, the, but the fact is, as soon as you ask that question, it just it just inflames anybody that's ever ridden Mugello, you know, like to, 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 to try and flatten the hump out into turmoil. Yeah, we're doing 225 mile an hour, which is a huge speed. Of course it is. Um, and accidents are going to happen. Um, but I think, sadly, as we were proved here, it doesn't have to be on the fast bits. It can be elsewhere as well. The, 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 you know, you, you can have an accident that is going to be devastating. But... But I wish people would, would not promote that kind of thing. Jello is a fantastic racetrack. And it promotes damn good racing as well. Spectacular racing, breathtaking racing. You know, and riders love the place almost as much as Phillip Island, for that matter. Um, and to suddenly start talking about, oh, is it going a bit too far? Should we put restrictions on them? You know, this PC Snowflake Brigade, just get on my nerves. They really do. It's quite interesting. Simon Crafar, who who is uh, the you know the, the reporter for Dorna from Trackside. Oh, did you see his tweet? Proper revved up. <laughs> Proper, he was having none of it. He even used the f bomb as well in it, which is unusual for Simon. He was swearing private, but you won't often see him do it in uh, in public. And, and he dropped the f bomb over it as well. It was something like "f right off," you know, for the, those of, those that want to modify. A classic track like Mugello. So for Simon to be quite so outspoken, considering his position now in life, uh, I thought was quite quite cool. Of course, I immediately liked it as fast as I could. Click, 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 click. <laughs> as I as I suspect most racers will have done. <laughs> yeah. uh. <laughs> 
That was a journal, Peter. Where did you fancy go with that? <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> I was just going to say, whenever I've asked about the top speed issue to anyone, you know, in MotoGP, you know, are you concerned by it yet? They've always said, look, you know, the accidents don't occur on the straights. How many big accidents have we had? You know, the accidents occur on the corners. That's the dangerous part. So that's always the priority is the safety in the corners. And as far as modifying tracks, of course, you always hope that, that the track layout can stay the same and that the walls can be moved. That's the perfect solution, right? Um, because, yeah, you know, a classic layout like Mugello that's, that's, to quote Rossi, not drawn on a computer, those are the ones that everyone loves. Although I haven't said that, we have seen a couple of really fast ones on that straight. It's got to be said. <laughs> Michele Pirro out through the front door uh, a couple of years back before airbags became uh, compulsory, which was stunning. And that uh, was certainly stunned him. And then um, Marquez down that front straight as well. Lost it off to the left. And, and underlining what you said, came into contact with that wall. I mean, the wall on the left-hand side, I think the, the, you're doing 225 mile an hour. You've also got a wall that's pretty close to the left-hand side of you, which absolutely overemphasizes the speed you're doing. 225 mile an hour is like, could be like 125 mile an hour somewhere else. It just depends on what's around you to give you that perception of speed. And of course, when you have to stop it at the end. And and, and with that slight rise into San Donato, the first turn at, uh, at Mugello, gets your attention because nowadays MotoGP guys, have, 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 they're right on that point when they've got to start anchoring it up. And there isn't an inch of spare room on the brakes to get you down into San Donato. Anyway. Jack, Jack Miller was saying exactly the same thing. Because if you look at the speed charts, it was it was equal with Qatar, wasn't it, the, the, this weekend? But Jack Miller said, you know, it's it's a very different speed when you're doing it here to doing it in Qatar, where you've got all that space. And he said, even on his first lap site, he said he, he chickened off over the rise. You know, he shut off. <laughs> he said it's just it's just such a, you know, it's much, much more challenging than doing the same speed at Qatar, where it's perfectly flat and everything's spaced out. Well, you mentioned it there, perfectly flat. But the whole thing, if you look at that shot that comes up from uh, Puccini, is it the final corner? And you look at, you know, A, it's got a bit of a curve in it. Mm. Then you've got a then you've got a massive rise in it. It's a proper roller coaster, and at that kind of pace, when you've got and the other thing is as well with the aero on on all the other motorbikes that are around you, you are getting pulled from from other people's aero. Aero is a, is a, has been an issue. I remember Bradley Smith telling me about it at uh, at uh, Phillip Island, you know, into Duans, which is a frighteningly quick corner off of a pretty fast straight. You know, you've got you're pulling so many mile an hour down into that that first corner. How appropriate is it they call a corner Duans? Anyway, um, and that arrow is just buffering you about, and you can't get quite there. And in fact, into Duans, when it uh, Zarco got sucked into the rear end of somebody, and who was it? He hit up the backside. I can't remember. Mark, oh, it was it was Marquez. Yeah, he wrecked his seat, didn't he? Um, and fired him into the trap there. I mean, it, high speed is what this is about. You speak to most motorbike racers, you know, Le Mans. We have more accidents at Le Mans than every year than we get anywhere else on the on the in the in the Grand Prix circuit. Hairpin corners, I have to use it's it's M Mouse, isn't it? It's definitely Mickey Mouse. I mean, you, you, Le Mans always throws up something interesting. I, I love Le Mans because it is it's a drop back to the seventies and eighties in atmosphere. It's you know burning bonfires, lunatic Frenchmen, um, you know shocks in the race. There's always a shock in the race somewhere that people you didn't expect to go quick goes quick. So I love Le Mans. But then when you come to somewhere like Mugello, where it starts to get a bit faster, and Phillip Island, all motorcycle racers love fast corners, where you can hang it out, where you where it, you go, oh, made it. <laughs> they're just, 
you know, the Turkish Grand Prix. What was that one where you go over the hill flat in sixth and it's a right hander over the top of the hill and everything you've got everything hanging out and uh, oh God, and yeah. your bum closed very, very tightly. Well, one, I love of the, those one of the things I noticed as well about Mugello, if you hadn't already uh, been sold on motorbike racing at Mugello listening to Keith last week, um, <laughs> <laughs> hopefully you are now sold. But one of the things that I was actually a little bit surprised by, I don't know why, was actually... Yes, I mean, well, I mean the, the start finish straight is not really straight, is it? It's slightly curved, but the bumps as well, they're almost like a little bit hidden because when you come up at the end, especially going to turn one, it's sort of you come up a crest and you can see if you if you get you can get that very wrong, and uh, it does sort of lift the bike up a bit as well. Does that then play a little bit into that horrible factor, which everyone hates talking about, is the safety thing? Because yes, the speed may be right, but if there's bumps involved, does it then it's get a little bit hazy? It's the overall challenge. I mean, yeah. if it was a, you know, if it was a smooth old racetrack with, you know, safe corners and runoff areas that are a mile wide and all the rest of it, it, it takes away the character of somewhere like Mugello. I mean, safety has to be paramount. There's no doubt about it. Um, but taking away the challenge of a track, it, it's a very, very different, difficult balancing act for Dorna, you know, Erta particularly for me. Um, because they're directly involved with the teams. Um, you know, it's a, it's a, Mike Trimby, who is, you know, the main man at Erta. You know, Mike originally back in the early 80s, I know Mike very well. He's a, he's a good friend of mine and a superb individual and, and responsible as a man for saving more lives in motorcycle racing than anybody else I care to think of. In that, if you go back to the 1980s, there he was traveling with his wife, Irene, who still works with him at, at, at Erta to the Grand Prix, twanging catch fence posts, making sure runoff areas had no debris in them, lumps of concrete, you know, rah 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 making sure there was, as it was back there, more bales of hay available and the like. Um, and slowly but surely bringing the specification of racetracks up to the then modern era, that momentum has carried on through the fact that the teams could see that the riders who employed Mike, we all... I might, may have gone over this ground before because I've been once around the goldfish bowl and can't remember if I did. But um, Mike, basically back in the day, um, received 4% of all the prize money that all the 500cc Grand Prix guys had. So basically what would happen at the end of the day, <laughs> you used to have to go to a window to collect your money. This was how badly we were treated like shit. <laughs> we were The motorcycle racers were the show and yet we were treated like just dispensable fodder back in the day. Right. Mike Trimby was the first man that moved that on. And basically, you turn up at a racetrack. I'll, I'll backtrack to when we arrive at a racetrack. So you come to a racetrack from a Grand Prix previously. You turn up. All the gates would be locked. You couldn't get in the track. So there'd be a long line of trucks up the street waiting to get in. Then some old boy had come in and let you in. Go anywhere. Park anywhere. Do anything you like. Hardly any power. They hadn't switched the power on. No water. Toilets were wrecked by some vandal from before. Um, so you ha it was it was like going to a bloody, I don't know, car boot sale with temporary toilets or something along those lines. Um, and then it was the track. It was generally dangerous because it hadn't been maintained properly or hadn't been looked after. So Mike would turn up a day or two before, go through it with the organisers, um, we had this old system of scrutineering. Who the hell scrutineers the top motorbikes in the world? So you had a, an old boy that would look at the bike at one end of the track. Then you'd have to go and sign on in the village because that's where the sign-on person was. Then you'd have to go on the other end of the village to get your leathers and your protective clothing checked, like, like we had no vested interest in having the right gear on. 
Um, and all this was by Mike Trimby was brought back into the paddock. Um, and the first thing that he did was made them come to us. So where our bikes were, the scrutineer, you know, he made the officials come to us. That was the first thing. Then the money, obviously, to, to you know, Mike needed funding. Mike was a, a normal guy. He's a multimillionaire now. But back in the day, Mike lived in a, you know, small house in Odiston, I think it was, in Hartford. Um, and basically, he took 4% of our money um, for, for his running costs and the like, but absolutely kicked the promoters into shape. The teams then saw how powerful the riders were becoming through Mike Trimby. And that's when Erta was born. The International Race Team Association was born. And Mike added that at that particular time. And his business acumen, I mean, he's a brilliant man. He's a very clever man. He's a, he's a great politician. He understands the way. And he's tough. And he's an ex-motorbike racer. Not a very good one. <laughs> Sorry, Mike, <laughs> if you're watching this. Um, but he's just an exceptional individual. And he has made motorcycle racing single-handedly safe at Grand Prix level and has continued to keep that going. He's built a team around him that continues to get that going. Dorna are obviously the main ringmasters in all of this because they are the promoters, the owners, and so on and so forth. Erta are contracted to Dorna. The teams are contracted to Erta. The FIM, who's the third party in all of this, basically they stamp the licence for the track and stamp the licence for the riders. Um, and they are our international controlling body, if you like. But they they have minimal say, effectively, in what goes on at each track. That's down to Dawn and Erta. Um, I'm gonna. That is actually fascinating. A history lesson from Keith Hewitt. There, we should do that as you every week. Actually, a little history lesson, something different each week. That'd be nice. Uh, I'm the only could. one out of the three of us is old enough. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll move swiftly on then, um, because I want to go back to some more racing action. I actually want to talk about Alex Rins, uh, please, um, and uh, some brilliant battles between the two the two Suzuki riders, the teammates, uh, Joan Mir as well, Alex Rins. Brilliant battle, actually, between those two, chopping and changing places. Um, Rins then eventually kind of fell back from his teammate, and then he crashed out for a fourth consecutive race in a row, which you can't really be doing, can you? Unforced errors. Team frowns on unforced errors. I'm surprised he didn't just walk straight out the front gate and go home. Uh, the problem is, and people bear me out on this because he's had to talk to some of these riders after these um, kind of runs are concerned. I mean, getting over them is bloody hard because he's obviously fast. He's obviously got the speed. The bike's good, you know, ish. Um, he's in the World Championship winning team. He wants to get ahead of his teammate Mia because that's rule number one but he just can't seem to stick it together for an entire race I mean it, I'm trying to think who else was you know did Alex Marquez go through this stage a while ago as well I think that there have been some riders that have had to get over these kind of runs of it's a very fine line Pete isn't it I mean the, 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 everybody's so tight on time now the, 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 the drop off with tyre you, you, I don't know whether he had a problem with that towards the point where he fell down. I mean, it's it's unexplainable for somebody who's not on the bike, Harry. I wish I could I wish I could elaborate a bit more, but at the end of the day, it has to come under the heading of it's an unforced error that's his fault. 
part of the problem, as you say, Keith, seems to be that, that Alex isn't exactly sure why these accidents are happening. Certainly the one on Sunday. And, and that, then how do you fix something that you're not sure how it happened? Um, it seems to be different mistakes as well, which also makes it harder, I guess. You know, I think he, he ran wide in Hareth and hit a bump. And there's been you know, different kinds of errors early in the race, late in the race. If we look back and we think there was a stage where some of the Honda riders were losing the front a lot. You know, so it was all one consistent problem that they could chip away at and work at. But it seems like he snatches victory from the uh, defeat from the jaws of victory, doesn't he? In the sense that he was he was there. He was on course for a great result, you know, a podium potentially. And instead, he ends up still he hasn't scored a single point in Europe this year. I mean, he might not as might as well have not turned up to any race since Qatar. It's and in terms of the championship, four four non scores is a, is a disaster, isn't it? I can't imagine that there's any chance of the title this year unless something really dramatic happens. So he's in a he's in a big hole at the moment, and he, he badly badly just needs to finish. Need a reset. I think the summer recess can't come soon enough. Sometimes when you're on that slope that you can't seem to work out, sometimes you need to just rest for a while, take stock and work your way forward again. This year's blown for him, you're right. Mm. Um, so he's got to look forward to the second half of the season once we get there. Well, another tough one uh, for Alex Rins. Uh, but the top three, let's uh, let's talk about them. Uh, because it was, well, once Bagnaia crashed out and uh, Zarco's challenge had uh, faded because he really was putting on a good challenge to begin with, but it ultimately didn't, didn't he fell back in the pack. Uh, and Quartero then managed to pull a gap and never really looked under threat and then ended Ducati's dominance in Mugello uh, in their own back garden and uh, extends his own championship lead. I, I, I thought it was a flawless drive for him. It was. Yeah. I mean, he had to dispense with Bagnaia. I mean, like once the Yamaha gets his own airspace, that's when it's, at, you know, once it's got just that 20 or 30 yards onto that front straight where the, uh, the Ducatis can't ram it up the inside by the end of it and spoil your overall lap. Uh, you know, it was something that, you know, Ducati will have been scared of with, with Yamaha. Um, again, like I keep saying, Maverick Vinales should have been there or thereabouts as well. The, you know, Yamaha could have had an absolute perfect weekend if Vinales had, um, from FP3, um, hadn't made so many muck-ups, really. Mm-hmm. But Quattararo, 24 points now from Zarco, two further back to Magnaia, I'm looking at here, five further back to Jack Miller. World champion, Joan Mir, ninth. Uh, sorry, fifth with nine points back from Jack Miller. 40 points now Quattararo has over Joan Mia in the championship. Um, and in my opinion, with the way that the pandemic is still motoring, particularly in Asia, um, I can't see some of these races we've got scheduled for later in the season. So anybody that's banking on having 19 races this year, I think is going to be very, very lucky. I don't think we're going to have nine. I, I can't see... 19 races by the end of the year personally yeah p looks like he had the, the arm pump surgery at the right time it does doesn't it yeah and, and thankfully he's recovered from it very well Aleish, who also had the surgery he came back and he had problems with fluid buildup this weekend and things like that which we've heard of before but Cosraro seemed like you know he's he's got that problem fixed and he's come back and Valentino Rossi was quite interesting he was saying that you know Cotteraro has made the difference in a lot of races this year he thinks that it was to use my words, not Rossi's, but it was it's Quattararo winning rather than the Yamaha. And he, he gave the example of, you know, Qatar 2. He said that was Quattararo making the difference, Portimao, uh, Jerez before the arm pump problem, and then also Mugello. So, that, you know, that's four races. I mean, we could even say, potentially, are we looking at a situation a bit like there, there was with Mark and Honda, where, you know, Yamaha are relying 
pretty much on one guy to win all the time. We know that Maverick is fast, and as Keith was saying, he, he has the pace to do it, but it hasn't happened. He won the first race in Qatar, but first race of the season, there seemed to be some fuel issues for Ducati, fuel consumption, things like that. And, you know, there's been basically Quattararo winning, and Maverick's been on the podium once, and Morbidelli's been on the podium once. You look at where the other, the other Yamahas are, unlike the Ducatis, where usually, you know, the top Ducati, and then the next one might be right behind, with the Yamahas, it's it's only really been one bike up there, and at the moment, it's all Cotteraro. Imagine how Rossi feels. Tenth, and he inherited that. Nineteenth yep. in the championship. Unbelievable. We're going to hear from him soon. I'm sure of it. When we get to that summer break, um, you know, it's 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 going to be devastating for some, inevitable for others. Um, but it, it sounds to me like there's uh, been a little bit of movement going on in the manager managerial front uh, behind the scenes. So Rossi pretty soon. Uh, a man I feel a bit sorry for this weekend was uh, Miguel Oliveira. He's almost been overlooked. Second place on the KTM. I mean, a, a big shout out for Miguel Oliveira. I mean, okay, he's won a race before, but that was a fantastic ride. And yet I've hardly seen any headlines for him. I've hardly heard anybody mention about him. He was brilliant. He was absolutely brilliant. I mean, to, to bring it home, you know, the KTM's, like the new tyre, there's been a chassis change. They've got a, a fuel strategy change, I think. I've never got to the bottom of this. I mean, it's a bit difficult when you're not at trackside to, to nail these things down in the pub or, or in the in the restaurant or wherever you might get that extra little bit of information from a, a technician who's not supposed to tell you it. So we're a bit buggered when it comes to that kind of thing at the moment. But, um, you know, I, my understanding is it's a fuel strategy. They've, they've allowed a different, you know, they've, they've come up with a different map to, to, to work the fuel slightly differently. People were talking about a different fuel. I don't think it was different fuel because I don't think they can use different fuel. But anyway, well, was um, it also sure the, the, their front tire as well? Because that was something they they sort of struggled with early on, and obviously we we had the new Michelins this weekend. So they look, the KTM looked like they've sort of gotten on top of the issues they had struggled with as well in terms of the t- they were getting those front tires to work. Yeah, I mean, I think it was ideal temperature, forty-one degrees of track temperature, which was nigh on perfect for for, for Mugello non-asymmetric tyres which some bikes when you've got that, that dual compound across the across the front tyre that that can cre- create sometimes as many problems as it cures so I think most riders would prefer to be using a, a straightforward um, compound across the, the the whole of the tyre so I think that that again is another uh, aspect of Mugello that everybody enjoys you know it's a, it's a straightforward thing and, and, and again you're right the the, the, the tyre tire grip as soon as you start messing around with with the, the ratio of grip between front and rear tires, that's when teams have a real job to sort it out. When we went from Bridgestones to Michelin's, Bridgestone had the best front tire and not the best rear tire, so you could do virtually everything. I always remember, I think it was Colin Edwards who said that you know with a with a with a Bridgestone, you just need faith. All you do is you get to the corner and you just go. Argh! and jam it on all the way, trail break it all the way in as hard as you like. You, you can't believe what you can do with it. Well, Michelin, you can't do that. It's a different, you know, there's more grip at the rear with the Michelin than there was. The, the ratio changed, and that was the big problem early on with when we went to Michelin's. There were so many crashes because everyone was set up for a different kind of style on the motorbike, certainly in braking areas. Um, and I think, again, what's happened is, is that transition has been made slightly. Michelin have altered it by a, a, a 1% perhaps somewhere that – that suddenly you've got the Yamahas, that rear tyre gives them that grip that they And it's working for them so well around Mugello. 
Um, whereas that the advantage maybe Ducati had has, has, has gone. I mean, not in a straight line, obviously, but there's, there's only really one massive straight line that you're going to be able to use Ducati powering Magella. Well, uh, yeah, Pete, it was Oliveira, though, his, his best race of the year. After It has been a bit of a disastrous year for him so far. What Did he say anything trackside afterwards? Because, yeah, there, ha- there have not been that many headlines about him, to, to be fair, which is a bit hard hard luck. But uh, it, was a, it was a great drive from him. It was. And, and, and KTM had a new chassis this weekend. So they, as Keith said, to address these, presumably, almost certainly, to address these changes with the tyres. So they've reacted. And it's quite impressive the speed that they, you know, given the problems they had, say at Qatar, some of the early rounds, you know, they, they've really dug themselves out of a hole. It seems it's only one race, but let's see how they do it in Catalonia. But really impressive that they seem to have turned it around from from struggling to on the podium. And um, you know, when you compare that with as we, we talked about Honda earlier, they're still having quite a lot of problems. So it's you know, it's it's not easy to make that step, and it does look like KTM did make a really decent step this weekend. As Keith says, we need to see how it works with maybe different tyres, the asymmetric tyres in Catalonia, for example. It's a, it's a hard track on the tyres. But, you know, potentially they've, they've turned the corner. And after last year, where they had such a great season, it's not too late for them. But, you know, potentially they can be in there now for the rest of the year. And let's let's see, because Oliveira, you know, he's a he's a great rider, as we saw. He's, he, he's a cool-headed rider. He doesn't make mistakes. And... Um, you know, it was a great ride from him on Sunday. Well, Rufus Mead from Facebook has asked, if Miguel Oliveira was on a different bike, would he be a title contender? Huh. All the bikes are so close nowadays, aren't they? I mean, I think that what you have to do in the situation that Miguel is in, he is he needs to maximise what he's doing with the team he's with. And he would be doing exactly the same with whatever team he was with. Working together with your crew chief and your techs around you and, and putting the data together from the other uh, riders that are on a similar motorbike it, 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 technically you know things are he's intelligent and i think that will be a major plus factor across any manufacturer that he was with nowadays you need to be able to read what's going on as well it's not just a case of getting on a motorbike and riding it even the jack millers of this world have to pay attention to what's going on in the data you know it's it's not just about wringing its neck like it would have been in the old days yeah i can break an inch later break an inch later nowadays and you're in the in the fence you know, it's 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 a it's a different animal, uh, MotoGP now, which which really is is why we are at the situation we're at. And I know you're going there in a bit, Harry. So I hope I haven't preempted it. But you know, the track limits thing. You know, the reason why you know people agree and disagree in equal measure about track limits, you know, rules, is because we are in that situation where, you know, to three decimal points, we are fighting for that thousandth of a second everywhere and when you are looking at something like that where you can't pinch a thousandth of a second from anywhere then you need rules track limit rules that make sure people don't have an opportunity to steal that thousandth of a second in other words cheat illegitimately it's uh, it's, a, it's a very very different i mean i i hate it i hate track limit rules i absolutely bloody hate it but the compromise is safety as well mm-hmm. yeah Stick a grass strip down the side of the track. No one's going there. Well, but you've led us. You've led us beautifully there because that is exactly the next thing I'm going to go on for. You thought we were done with all the big talking points. You're absolutely wrong. Um, Because (laughs) let's let's just sort of highlight some of the the big 
issues that again brought up because Oliveira and Joan Mick came home second and third and then they were then swapped because Oliveira had the track violations uh track limit violations and then they and then they looked back at the tape it looked like then looked like Mir had done the exact same thing so they swapped that back around so that to me looked oh, a bit silly because I mean they, it didn't do anything and also where they came off the track I know they said the, no tire can touch that uh is it the, the blue or the green bit coming off the curb, green. green bit coming off the curb but it just looked a bit silly. And then it also stopped battles further back with Vinales and Pira, I think, as well. And we saw it in World Superbikes, Moto2 and Moto3 out in Mugello as well. It was everywhere. It took people off the podium. Yeah, well, I think that, that my problem with this is is that there, there, there needs to be a complete rethink regarding these track limit rules. Mm. I mean, I, I think that they're... I, I had a bit of a, a row on air with, with my co-commentator last year, I think it was, in Mizano when we were covering the whatever it was there and he being a journalist was was adamant rules are rules you know it's it's this is that and that's this and as a rider an ex-rider long in the tooth and long forgotten i know but the point being is it like this weekend in Mugello, Mizano had this tiny little bit of paint that stuck out it's like a triangle that stuck out and if you ran both tires over it as the rules were back in the day um you lost your lap time but it wasn't something that gained any advantage it was something it was a natural run through the line the same as we had here this weekend there was a bit of green paint that you could easily avoid it's you didn't need it at all it didn't it didn't allow you to run into the corner any faster and we'll get there in a minute because that's an important point didn't allow you to run into the corner any faster didn't allow you to run out of the corner any faster accelerate get on the gas any earlier it was just a bit of freaking paint that stuck out that people were running over now that, for me, is an unnecessary penalty, massively. Whether it's on the last lap, first lap, whenever it is, it's an unnecessary penalty. So I would suggest, if I was had anything to do with this at all, um, that you have designated areas that are clearly an advantage. In other words, that allow you to run into a corner faster than you naturally would because you know you're going to be able to pinch an inch on the way out if you get it wrong. I think it's as much about, it's not just about running over there and getting on the gas earlier. That's a fairly obvious advantage that you're getting if you're using the outside of the track on the exit of a corner to be able to tap the throttle in a millisecond earlier because a millisecond earlier than anyone else means you've got a yard extra by the end of the straight. So it's a clear advantage. You can't even measure it really in time. And I think that it's waste of time using time as an example. But where the, where the key issue for me is, when you run into a corner and you're trail braking, now, if you know that you are going to be relatively safe when you get to the outside of the, of, the, of the track, and if you really need to use it, you can, then that's an advantage. It's a, it's, a, it's a situation where in your head, there's no penalty for you running on when you get to the outside of the corner. So therefore, you'll push it a little harder going into the corner. Now, that that's a situation that does need legislation. So therefore, I would suggest that on say turns you know two four six eight they use the sensors and you get a draconian penalty if you run over those sensors because there is an advantage to be had through those turns but in places like we had where a bit of paint sticks out that there is no advantage that should still be designated you know it should still be under review by the stewards if they see something where someone has managed to take an advantage by it um then maybe they can then they've got the autonomy to be able to lay out a penalty if they should need to which they won't because it's 
it's obvious that you don't need to. I mean, it is is using the entrance to pit lane as part of the track, and the, and the and the chevrons at the end of pit lane at Mugello. Is that an advantage? Yeah, of course it is, because you're lining yourself up in a straight line for the braking area going into San Donato over that hill. It's an advantage. But in this particular case, the the thinking is is that no, from a safety point of view, you're better off going on a straight line over there on a MotoGP bike instead of having it all bloody hop skipping and jumping and trying to throw you off at 225 mile an hour. I think there still needs to be specific areas that there is no leeway and other areas where like bits of paint that stick out here and there that, you know, your poor old paint, the track painter bloke, when he goes around putting his new bits of paint on before every weekend, he isn't going to know where the bikes are going to go, where, where they're capable of being. He's just sticking the green paint where it was the last bloody three or four years. And that's what annoys me. Sorry, I'll get off my box. No, w- would you guys disagree then with what S. Herbert has asked on Twitter, which is, uh, <laughs> sh- should we return to grass and more gravel? That could, no. of course, cause more safety issues or just let them race. Should there be regulations for different classes? No. I mean, the track's the track. You're supposed to stay within the track. Mm. I think there needs to be some leeway on some of the bits of paint. I mean, I'm be interested to hear what Pete has to say here because he, he ha- Pete has a much wider view than me. I have this slightly narrow view as, a, as from a rider perspective. So Peter will be better for, for, for the politics behind it, perhaps. But no, you can't go to, you know, I, I, me and my old mate Terry Rhymer quite often have a conversation about it. Just put bloody AstroTurf down. They won't go on that. <laughs> No, you can't do that. It's 2021. It, it, you know, the safety issues. We were talking about what Mike Trimby had, had, had absolutely bloody forced into the promoters years ago. And Mike Trimby and, and anybody with any sense will be absolutely against anything like that. I'm I'm old school. You know, that's how it was with us. If you ran, you would run into a corner with, a, with just a little bit of leeway. Because if you came out the other side of it and was too hot in the middle of the corner... You're on the grass. And, mate, that was a big deal back then. Not only was it grass, but it wasn't even flat grass. Mm. It had holes in it or bricks in it or something like that. You'd be running across like a building site. Um, so, no, we can't go back to that day. I think, though, what there needs to be, it's almost like somebody hasn't actually gone around the track to see where the advantages are and the disadvantages are. It almost needs, you need someone like Simon Crafar. Now, Crafar is still fast on a moment. Sylvain Gintoli. Sylvain Gintoli would be the perfect beast for this. You know, just so I can hear his French Derbyshire accent would be good enough for me. But it's one of them jobs where guys that are still fast on motorbikes can, on the Wednesday, Thursday, when they're doing the kind of uh, BMW track bloody photography type things where they run that road bike round for, for television companies, that's the day to really have a look and think now, Let's, let's, let's take a, a proper look at this and work out where where track limits don't need to be applied. Because we look stupid when you are, suddenly you give someone a penalty, then you take it back because the other bloke did exactly the same thing. I mean, that's what it amounted to at the weekend, which just brings our sport into, into disrepute from, from my point of view. Um, it almost needs like you need someone to have actually done the track on the Thursday or, or after the event, like we've just had, they can't go anywhere at the moment. Everyone's hanging around tracks because they can't travel because of pandemic. But, you know, spend Monday having a proper look at it. Let's have a look at the, let's review the tapes. Let's have a look where they were running off, where it has no advantage whatsoever, and not have that as part of the penalty. Mm. Pete, what do you think? And, and, and sorry, Pete, let me get in this one as well. And while we're on the subjects of penalties, MotoGP riders should be given the same penalties as Moto3 and Moto2 for dawdling. There you go. That's one for, I'll load you up for that one, Pete. <laughs> well, for, first of all, 
Maverick Vinales completely agreed with you on the penalties. As far as at that corner, the bikes, you know, they were they were, they'd done the turn, they were straight, and they were just returning to the track. You know, there there was no advantage. Joe Roberts, obviously, being the kind of the worst affected one by this losing the podium. You know, he said Joe Roberts did nothing wrong there. You know, they'd done the turning part. They've remained within the curve for the turn. And then they're just straightening the bike up and running back on. So that was the first thing was that, you know, as you say, the, the, the painted area wasn't, it was too sharp. It wasn't gradually letting the riders go in a straight line back onto the track. So it, it wasn't really a track limit issue or it shouldn't have been. Um, and then you've got this, this problem of, I think, everything was going okay with the track limits until these last laps. And of course, on the last lap, you can't have the long lap penalties because there's no time to do them. So they've got this system of, okay, well, you automatically lose one place. But, you know, and this is what's causing the problem. The problem is, I think, it's too strict. You know, on the last lap, I think there needs to be more margin. We've seen that when it comes to making contact with other riders on the last lap, that they are willing race the, the FIM stewards I should say it is now not race direction they are willing to be a bit more lenient because they say well it's the last lap of a race we want to see battles and as long as you don't clout someone onto the ground you, you you can make a bit more contact and I think they need to take that kind of same view with the track limits on the last lap given that they can't do the warning system and then the long lap because it's the last lap I think they just need to be okay if it's a blatant you know, track limit violation, clear time gained, then yes, it should be penalised. But if not, I think it's okay. Mm. I I really like this idea of the sensors. I think that's a, uh, because I think, was it, I don't know how fair you are with, um, with Formula E, of course, the all electric racing series, but Lucas, (laughs) oh, oh, Stab to the heart. But uh, Lucas Degrassi, a former F1, of course, uh, and champion in Formula E, said that they have this thing called attack mode, obviously. Now, regardless if you think that's a bit of a gimmick or what, it, it is done by sensors on the track and they have to go through all four sensors or eight, however many they are, in order to get it. And if they don't, they don't get it. Surely that same kind of technology can be quite simply applied to existing tracks. Because bear in mind, Formula E only races at temporary road circuits. So they're adding that in every time they go. I think it is. I think that we do have those sensors now. Right. I mean, they, they, there's been a bit of a problem with the with the wet weather. I think at some point as well that that, that may have caused a, a bit of grief on that front. But I think my point is is yeah, I think sensors is we're 2021. I agree, Harry. That is the way to go. We we should have that in areas that there is definitely an advantage to be had. It's effectively the gravel or the grass. You go across it and you get a penalty. Um, so I think that that's correct. I think what Pete and I are banging the drum, or certainly I am, is that in areas that are unnecessary, when they run across a bit of green paint, in an, in an area that clearly has given them no advantage on the way into a corner or on the way out of it, and that's the issue here. It's not just about running across the green on the way out where you can tap the throttle a fraction earlier. It's about giving you the confidence to run in too hard. And most time is made up in modern-day motorbikes Trail breaking into a corner, a huge amount of time is made up in modern day motorbikes with the grip and the and the levels of you know seamless gearboxes down through the gearbox when you're coming in. Bikes not being upset through gear changes, it's ying 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 and you're running into the corner without it getting slightly out of shape. Go back in my day when you're banging it down through the gearbox, the bloody things leaping all over the place and the rear wheels locked, and God knows what. Um, whereas nowadays, all that time on the way in, it's why I, I tell you what the, that. Just talking about it is sending the hairs on my arms up on end. Because those motorbikes are just freaking brilliant. You know, you just, you stand at the side of the track and you see what they're doing with them and how quick they're getting into a corner. 
But of course, all that confidence means that they can pinch an inch on the way in because they know they're not going to get penalised on the way out. And that's where they must be penalised on the way out because it's given them the confidence, that extra bit of runoff. So if their sensors there, perfect. But I still believe that not all the area, not all the green parts on the track that seems to be a blanket rule at the moment, if you go across the green, you're going to get you know penalised in some way, shape or form. I don't find that to be the correct thing. I think we need that that reasonable half and half. And after this year, with these new sensors, we should be in a position for 2022 to be able to make that that kind of more reasonable view, in my in my opinion. Anyway. Don't you just love track limits? <laughs> no. <laughs> every, no. It's always a debate. In every single, it doesn't matter what motorsport you watch, it is always there. And it because, it, because it's so close. Yeah. Because, because everything is so close now. You, talk, you mentioned Formula E. I, despite the fact that I am slightly disparaging towards electric vehicles, because... Again, if we want to get on the environment, my children, I have so many of them, uh, are always on about the environment. They're always on about it. I got told off the other day for putting some dirty plastic in the, in the, in the, in the, in the plastics bin because that negates the whole thing if you don't wash it off in the plastics yeah. thing. Anyway, um, the point being is, is that with, it, with, with, with electric vehicles, I, I, I just don't think we see the whole thing. I mean, where does the battery come from? And then after it's run out, like your phone battery, where does it get dumped? The bit in the middle, which is the car or the bike, is fine. That is environmentally beautiful. But it's either side of it for me. No one's quite answered my, uh, my questions regarding this. You know, We're digging up brilliant minerals from somewhere with some poor sod who's on minimum wage somewhere to, uh, to make our lives feel better around London. And then at the end of the day, when the battery goes flat, because it's only got 70% of usage left in it, like a mobile phone battery, where does that huge battery get dumped? Where does that get recycled? Someone explain it to me. I, I wish I could. <laughs> ah, there you go. And you are the problem. <laughs> hey, hey, hey. To be fair, I think... drive, drive, drive around in your Prius, you might do, and you might feel very righteous. But the fact is that that battery's got to be dug out of somewhere. It's got to be dumped somewhere. You, you are absolutely correct. And I, but I'm certain there's an answer for you. And I think we let, I, I'm going to pence. I've written that down as a debate to be had in a future episode. <laughs> when there's no race week on, we're having that debate. And I'm going to, oh, I'm yeah. going to come with more informative. Uh, don't, don't expect anything intelligent from yeah. me, by the way. <laughs> Well, look, track limits, it was an issue in MotoGP and throughout the classes that we have to touch, of course, on Moto3 and Moto2, particularly obviously at the start with Moto3, really difficult circumstances to go racing in. But it was a Slipstream City, really, well, for all the riders, and I thought so in particular for, for Moto3. And it was Dennis Foggia, last lap dash for him. First win of uh, the season for him on home turf. Massia second, despite he's got a bit of a hand injury as well from Le Mans. And Gabriel Rodrigo came home in third. What did you make of the Moto3 action? Well, Rodrigo didn't crash. That was a bonus straight away. Um, but Foggia, we have watched the Leopard bikes for years and never understood how they can always be as fast as they are. I don't get it. These are the most regu- this is the most regulated class. There, there isn't anything that they can be doing that's outside of the rules at all. Because believe me. Every man and his dog has been looking at these bloody motorbikes at Leopard. How they managed always to just have that extra advantage. And even at a place where slipstream is everything in Moto3, Foggia could lead onto the last lap and add enough grunt to get into the line, which is a long way up the street, 
and I don't understand it, and I I can't get to the bottom of it. It's it's kind of it's almost incredible. But whoever, you know, the Leopard Boys produce the fastest motorbikes. End of the end of. Why is that, Pete? You answer. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I could, King. But, but exactly, yeah. I, I mean, I think. I think even the other teams don't know. I mean, obviously they, they, they would do the same. Yeah. It's, as you say, there's so, so many parts of the bike are regulated that no one's quite sure. But yet consistently, when you look at the top speed charts, week in, week out, those bikes are the quickest. And, okay, originally you might, you might think, oh, well, it's the rider. The rider's small or he's some special aerodynamic shape. But then they've changed riders this year, haven't they? And, and it's still the bike that, that is quickest. Um, so, yeah. Uh, so I, I, used, I used to chase the the you know the lovely and now late sadly Gary McLaren who was was in charge of Moto Three Moto Two um, technical stuff and I used to chase around Gary and say what's going on here and it, although he's not allowed to tell me anything back in the day and um, uh, there was nothing he said we have checked we have we have gone through this so many times he said Leopard just managed to put the combination together. Um, but to be able to do it consistently year on year is remarkable. It's a it's a real team achievement to um, to be able to to manage that. Fantastic, really good on him, and good for Foggia. I mean, he was a very happy chap afterwards, wasn't he? I've never seen it. Well, I have seen, but he was very happy with that win. And despite being a victim of track limits, Pedro Costa keeps the championship lead with 111 points, and now Masia in second on 59. But that is a hell of a gap for Acosta, isn't it? <laughs> especially if you think Heath, that we're, gonna, we're not going to have as many races that we think we are well i mean it's uh, you know dawner will be looking to see what the alternatives might be um for the year as we move on but i think that the, the bloody goalposts keep moving all the time don't they it's 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 a difficult one to see but i mean thailand is is still in a mess regarding you know they've, they've not run out any kind of um, vaccination program yet i've got friends that obviously live there pete you're a, you're there so you know what's going on malaysia is is difficult. We've just heard the French have just closed down their borders to us. Germany has closed down their borders as well. So, you know, this this is this is running on at the moment, and there will be these pockets of, of pandemic, you know, viruses that, that various versions of it that crop up here and there. That's the nature of the beast, isn't it? So, um, nobody knows. I mean, Dorna, Dorna have just been bloody brilliant. I mean, the, 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 they've. You know, I know the Spanish get some stick really because it is so such a spanish orientated sport nowadays with the the riders and the and the, the tracks that they've got there as well but you know dorna do a fantastic job of keeping this show on the road we wouldn't have had any grand prix racing last year if it hadn't been for dorna and dorna have spent their own money as well to make sure that it happens mm. um so they will have contingency plans i mean obviously we've got two rounds now in austria um because uh, we lost a round so they doubled up on but I mean, that's a, a rich country with a very well-sponsored racetrack <laughs> by Red Bull. So um, you can imagine they could do that fairly easily. But quite where we go when we get to the Asian rounds, will Australia be open to us? I mean, Australia are, are paranoid about it as well. I can see them not having a race there again. Thailand, I think almost certainly not. I mean, at the moment, it, it's not looking great. I, you can't buy a vaccine in Thailand for love nor money. Yeah, literally. It's uh, it's very tough circumstances, isn't it, to really predict too much? But it is uh, a, a hell of a lot of effort by everybody, especially at Dorna and, and the wider MotoGP family, to get this show going. Uh, and it was another show as well in Moto2 because uh, we're going to move on to there because we are now coming under pre- under time pressure. I'm gonna I've put the stopwatch on. Um, it was a battle of the teammates yet again. Remy Gardner, Ralph Fernandez. Remy put a great consistent challenge, I thought, this year so far actually, and finally. 
finally getting the win. Raul unable to fight back, even with help of uh, Slipstream, uh, losing it on that final lap. Sam Lowe's, though, was, was the initial challenger, but an early exit awaited him. Uh, so thoughts on, on, on the, the Moto2 action? I've got the feeling you were pussyfooting around the Sam Lowe's uh, issue there, oh, just a little bit. <laughs> an early exit. I don't, an early exit. I don't blame, it's funny, isn't it? Because <laughs> we can be as critical as you like over Alex Rins. Yeah. But we don't feel we can be over Sam Lowe's. That's that's the yeah. slight issue here. Um, Sam is the faster man. He's, he's quick. But just that little mistake just takes him out again. I mean... It's a disaster. When you look at it, how many has he had? Non- He's had three no scores this year so far. Two wins in the third place and everything else he hasn't scored at. I mean, that in the man's fast. I mean, I, I put a Twitter thing out to him that, you know, stay calm, get the job done. I think I said to him on Twitter. Yeah, not anybody takes any notice of me on Twitter. But at the end of the day, it was kind of, I think, the reason for saying it was, it was a sentiment that we all had. You know, we just want Sam. We just need Sam to just get that kind of calm consistency back into it that he showed us early on in the year. He looked a man so in control early on in the year. And right now, he's got the same problem as Alex Rins has got, that he's got to pull himself back just that fraction to regroup, to regain that confidence, to get the job done. He's fast enough. There's no doubt about that. But it's the only issue. And every week we go into the next round and we have our fingers crossed and know he can do it but have that massive doubt like i suspect he does now in the back of his head will he do it mm. for pete for for what do you think for sam Lowe's, you know he's also got to be thinking about where he's going to go for next season as well and, and trying to make moves what what he's got to sort of stop stop that hasn't he? he's got to be uh stopping ex- exiting from races that's it. With every mistake, the pressure grows, doesn't it? That's the trouble. It, it then, you know, you know, he's seeing that the championship leaders, because he knows he should be fighting for the championship. As he said, he's, he's the fastest guy out there, probably. He definitely should be fighting for the championship, but he's seeing that that gap get bigger and bigger because of these mistakes, and, and that just puts more pressure on him. And, you know, he, he fell from the race when he was trying to chase down Fernandez, but then we saw that Fernandez kind of faded, so probably... If Sam had not put him, you know, put so much pressure or on himself to close that gap right then, Fernandez might have come back to him anyway. So it's it's you know you never know because obviously Remy Gardner then took over from Sam in second, caught Fernandez, won the race. So it's yeah, it, it's really put he's putting more pressure on himself, which is the last he needs at the moment. You know, we saw last year he was just doing fantastically when he's when he doesn't feel that pressure and he can just ride with a relaxed state of mind we saw he's, he's incredible and you know he like like Alex Rins as we're saying you know he, he now badly needs to finish and, and sort of hit the reset button get things under control and and but he's got to maybe rely on mistakes by the guys ahead of him in the championship now if he's going to get back into it. Managerially you've got two of the best teams in the paddock Mark VDS versus Aki Ayo. I mean what a tour de force that is between two of the massive Moto two teams. I mean, Aki Ayo at the moment, Remy Gardner and and Raul Fernandez's man. They had first and second the last two weekends. Um, bang on it at the minute. Mark VDS, Augusto Fernandez chucked it up the road. You know, I expect Augusto Fernandez to be honest to be a real challenger for Sam Lowe's. You got two big names in Mark VDS. They end up on the floor, and yet Aki Ayo's team managed to come away with another one too. Um, it's quite interesting watching this dynamic. I mean. 
Gilles Bigot, who is the, the crew chief for Sam Lowe's, oh, ma- massive respect I have for Gilles Bigot. He's been there, done that, you know, across the board. Really good man to have in your corner. And Gilles, for me, has got Sam in a really good position at the beginning of this year. But but at the end of the day, it's the guy holding the handlebars that's got to make it work back out on the track. And like I said about Alex Rins, this slow slide, this slow slope of not understanding quite why it's going wrong quite as often as it is, is is very, very difficult for a rider to get over. Sam's got a big job on his hands to to straighten his head out. Mm. He's a good lad. He's a, such a good lad. And he works so bloody hard, Sam Lowe's. Um, and I don't think there's anybody would begrudge him bloody winning the championship, but it's going to be one of them ones where he's really, really, I mean, what is he now? He's 22 points behind Bezeki, who's 20 points behind Rail Fernandez, who's six points behind Remy Gardner. So he's a, he's a 66 points versus 114, effectively, Sam to the leader. Big gap. And I know it's simple to say, but you've got to be in it to win it at the end of the day, haven't you? If, you, if you're not, um, if you're bidding it, then there's no no chances there. Um, and we spoke briefly as well about Joe Roberts earlier on, but it was a good run for him. But then uh, it wasn't his, we, we said this already, it wasn't his fault, but he could be proud of the run he had there, can't he? Yeah, I mean, Bezeki didn't believe that he'd won the race, uh, didn't believe he was in par ferme because Bezeki, you know, knew where Joe had gone, but, you know, but he didn't believe that he was going to get the penalty that he got for, the, for, for removing him from Park Ferme, effectively. <clears throat> I think Joe Roberts, the American racing team, is doing a great job. I think Cameron Bobier has been, he's been better, consistently better than I thought he was going to be when he came to, came to Europe. I thought that this would be a... Some, when you come from a small pond as the big guy in the small pond, as he was in America, um, when you come over and get your ass kicked by a people you've never heard of half the time it's it's a it's a different factor when you get here it's it's, it's cutthroat in motor too bobier is by far their equal i mean he's there he's, he's he's it's only a matter of time for bobier as well the american racing team is doing a great job um big up america about time we had a, an american team that was somewhere thereabouts it's good to see some some american success though because once again i say it coming from a, an f1 background you know there's so much talk we need an american f1 driver we've got oh we've got an american team uh, i mean with with huge uh, markers either side but it is good to see that that talent coming through and yes and and they're, and they're surprised actually when they come over at the, at the high level that they've got to fight against haven't they pete Absolutely. I mean, you know, as you say, Cameron Bobier is a great rider. and he, But he seems to have come here, as you say, really humble attitude and just knowing that it's going to be difficult for a few rounds. It doesn't matter what you've done before. You know, you're now in this new class, completely different championship, trying to adapt to all these new things. And, and, and he's done he's done a really good, solid job. And he, he's, he's building every week, which is what you know, any team wants to see from from any rookie rider. You know, they want to see them constantly making those improvements and, and building that confidence. And yeah, I think he's 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 proving that he's made the right decision. It must have been a really difficult decision to give up that lucrative career in America and come over here. But he, he's shown that he can make a success of it. And and yeah, we all hope that along with Joe Roberts, who's obviously doing well, that that we could have some Americans in MotoGP again soon. Well, look at what Garrett Gerloff did when he had his one-off ride. I mean, blimey, he came in and, and absolutely tore all the trees up. I couldn't believe it. He's gone to World Superbike. I mean, the Americans have got so – they're a bit of a force at the moment. They're beginning to emerge again, aren't they? I, I mean, there's not, they've not got a, a great deal of riders back at um, back in the States that we should be taking much notice of. But slowly but surely, I think Wayne Rainey and Moto America are slowly but surely pushing it back uh, towards the forefront. So, um 
Come on, America. <laughs> Exciting times. Of course, we had the great Indy 500 uh, yesterday. I was going to say, I knew you were going to go there. I knew you were going to do that. Got to squeeze in. I, oh, we can't. We can't. We've got to move on. We've got to move on. It was great, though. Wasn't it? Elio Castroneves, oh. fourth win. Fourth win. Unbelievable. Not even a full-timer. But who drink milk? Come oh. on. Well, yeah, uh, did you see the milk orders that they all did? Juan Pablo Montoya ordered chocolate milk. How? Oh, just, just mad, isn't it? Um, but... Back to two wheeled. We could well we do get sidetracked, don't we? Back to two wheeled now. No, you do. We're when nearly there. We're nearly there. Thanks for hanging on in there. Uh, because we don't have to wait long for more racing because we're back uh, for Catalonia and Barcelona Grand Prix this weekend. Give us the insider's guide then, what to expect. Because actually, well, we've got a bit of a reprofile corner, haven't we, as well, uh, for, for the bikes, especially uh, in Spain. But who's gonna go well there? What what should we be looking out for? Give us the lowdown. Well, you wrecked the track with your Formula One cars when you stuck that bloody chicane in uh, well, between um, the final two corners. And the reason for that was, as it turned 10, we couldn't extend the runoff because the chicane was the other side of the fence. So what they've done now is they don't look like Harry. <laughs> it's not really your fault. <laughs> no, I feel like it. I think it's F1 hate it as well. So they just, oh, anyway, that's a whole other thing. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I never really understood why you had to have the chicane there. Yeah. Um, but anyway, um, that chicane that was the other side of turn 10 meant that we couldn't get turn 10 to to extend to where it needed to be runoff wise and turn 10 was beautiful and set up the final couple of corners at the track for motorbikes really, really well. Um, I don't think the car guys actually like the, the, the corner that we've got now either, um, to be honest, but we'll, we'll think it's wonderful in comparison to where it was a minute ago. So I think that, that, that they've done that. I tell you what, you know, Catalonia spending the kind of money they had, because they had to spend big, that corner I mentioned earlier on when we were talking about, unfortunately, Jason Pasquier's passing, I mentioned that um, Luis Salom, um, who was killed at the, the, the penultimate corner, um, there wasn't quite enough runoff there, and 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 he, the bike, bike hit the the catch fence, uh, the um, air fence, bounced back and, and caught him. Um, so basically, although Catalonia were, you know, crying that they didn't have any money, which I don't blame them because most circuits don't have any money at the moment. They took away a grandstand and moved that right back. So we got a, a much bigger run in that penultimate corner and, and made the safety changes. Now, after everyone saying that we didn't like that turn 10 or what was turn 10 and then got modified, um, they've come back again and reprofiled the entire track. Catalonia have, have made a lot of investment, made a lot of effort. And I'm, I'm really, really pleased that a racetrack that, you know, it's tough spending millions of pounds on racetracks because they don't I don't think they make that much money if any in most cases if it's not got government backing um to make to reprofile something like that is a big deal um and they've done it and I think we're going to be in for a cracking weekend bit of a Yamaha track though I've got to say so Quattararo also being particularly good around Catalonia <laughs> No guesses for who's going to be betting on him this weekend. <laughs> well, we're nearly there, Pete. Yeah, well, it was around this time that we lost you, Pete, last last week. But uh, no power cut yet. But um, yeah, well, well, yes, the Yamahas again will do go well here. What, what you know, you've got lots of experience of uh, of Catalonia. What what's your take on it for this year? I think that uh, as we say, it's great to see that that turn ten moving more towards the original one, which was great for seeing bikes sliding and, you know, for, for us watching track side, awesome. Because as Keith said, they didn't, you know, they had a perfectly safe track. They didn't need to change the corners again. They changed it to make it better. And that's great to see. 
So um, as, far, as far as the race, it, last year was very much tyre wear. There was a lot of tyre wear in the race, and we saw the Suzukis with their great tyre tire wear coming through late on um, and, and almost catching Quattararo. We also saw Valentino Rossi, it seems like a long time ago, but he was also at one stage closing in on Quattararo. So, you know, a lot's happened since that race last year. But if we see, you know, if those sort of things happen again, will we see the Suzuki's up front? Um, you know, after, after Mia, Mia's great ride in Mugello, I, I'd be quite happy to, for him to be my, uh, my bet for this weekend. Um, but I think, you know, that being said, I think that Quattararo is going to be very tough to beat again. He's on the crest of a wave. And, um, you know, a long straight as well. That's not going to hurt the Ducatis at all either, though. Well, let's let's lock these in then, because it is time now for the predictions. Let's lock them in. Currently, uh, I hate to say it, but Pete and Keith are tied in the lead uh, after after Pete's prediction of Fabio winning uh, in Ducati's backyard in Mugello. Keith went, of course, for Bangnaya. Uh, that didn't end well. And then I, I well, you let me graciously have Miller. And <laughs> the one weekend, he didn't really have those few extra attempts, did he? Um, seemed a great shout at the time, but clearly not. Uh, so it's Keith won, Pete won. Harry zero. Uh, so go on then. Um, who... No, I think on that on that on that basis, Harry, since you are the um, the trailing a little bit, you ought to go first. Yes, you know what? I wasn't angling for it, but there we go. Well, Not much. Well, in that case, I'm going to go for Quartararo. <laughs> That's going to come back to bite me. No, it is. But I'm locking that in. I've got. You can't not, can you? Right. Go on then. Um, Pete. Pete, go next. Go on. Uh, yes, you know. Sorry about that. <laughs> I think Quattrararo is going to be tough to beat, but yeah, I'll, I'll go with Mia. I think oh, that if, okay. you know, if we see a race like last year, and he's coming off a strong race in Mugello, so yeah, I'll go with Mia. Do you know what? I always like a sporting bet. I think when it's a bit too obvious, Harry, I, I just I struggle a bit. Uh, with yeah, it. yeah. I'm going to go with Maverick Vinales. Interesting. You think he's back on form? Well, it's not off form. Well, oh well, he just he just mucks up. Well, yeah. You know, if if he if he gets the clear air that that if he can make it work, if he can get through, you know, qualifying in a decent position, Maverick Vinales, if he can get away from the start, I mean, like Quattararo, it's going to be uh, it's going to be interesting. I mean, Quattararo's got to be got to be the best bet for it as it is at the minute, and I mean, any one of us would have picked that. <laughs> I've just got to get one point. I've got to get one point. But I think I think Pete's gone with a good sporting one with Joanne Mir. I like that. Um, Maverick Vinales for me. Okay. Interesting that nobody's picked any uh, Ducatis anywhere there, of course. Mm. Hey, well, anything could happen, of course. This is Moto. It could, GP. because you could have a KTM. You could have a KTM that's going good. Miguel Oliveira doing very well. Um, well, okay, so that's me, quarter I Pete with me, and uh, Keith's gone with Vinales. So we haven't got long to wait until we see who comes out on top. Hopefully I can get on the board with at least one point. Okay, Keith, Pete, we get a lot of messages uh every week which is really nice but after last week's show we got one big criticism uh which said that um our show wasn't long enough well don't say (laughs) we don't listen to you because the big bosses have extended our time slot clearly and i was finding it difficult to shut keith up anyway so it's all worked out for the best uh but keith Pete, a huge thank you as ever. We do have to bring it to a close now. Thank you as well uh, for joining us and listening along. Uh, Do make sure you leave a review or comment wherever you're listening to this podcast. Get in touch too uh, if you want to put your opinions across or any questions you might have and I'll ask them to the guys. But in the meantime, we head to Catalonia for the next round of the 2021 MotoGP season. Keep up to date with all the latest on Crash.net and we'll see you next week where we get to do this all over again. We move on from Mugello, but the thoughts of the entire 
motorsport community remain, of course, on Jason Tapasquier, the young Moto3 rider who sadly passed away over the weekend. From us all here, bye-bye. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.